are in global collective trauma and grief. We are collectively grieving the way life used to be. And it's a particular type of loss called a non-finite loss. Some people are also grieving the physical loss of their family and friends, which makes it even harder. But collectively around the world, regardless of what country you're in, we are experiencing a non-finite loss. And the characteristics of a non-finite loss is that it's from external sources that we cannot resolve and that it is a continual loss. So we are constantly having to adapt to the changes and this absolutely is an adaptive challenge. It creates an ongoing sense of helplessness, constant uncertainty about what will happen, will this end. It creates, in spite of all of our technology, it creates a disconnection from the mainstream. Welcome to the Alcon Edition Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now, stuck in my super boiling hot bedroom with no air conditioning in the gross LA, LA heat. I say gross LA heat. I love it. I absolutely love this weather. It is so beautiful at the moment. It's a bit tricky in the evenings. It gets a bit sweaty. And but um, you know, I really like this weather, I'm finding it really great. Uh, lockdown news from Tahunga in California. Uh, we're uh, we're we're doing all right here, you know, we're doing all right. Uh, with me and Liza, we're taking the opportunity to uh, look at a few online workshops. We're currently doing uh, uh, Rekindling Our Desire by Esther Perel. Been Going through a couple of videos of that, really, really loving it, to be honest. Really loving it, really exciting about what I'm going to learn. I always love it when I'm learning learning something more and educating myself and uh, expanding my thought process and my strengthening those kind of like brain waves of mine. Um, and it's really important because like, you know, in the main, everything that I do here at 1000 Days Sober and the Alcohol Addiction Podcast and Strive, it's all just stuff that I pick up from everywhere else that I transfer to you. So the more that I can study and get into that, the more value I can provide you folks, right? And that I think that's what we should be doing right now. Once we've prepared a plan, we understand the consequences of what can happen if we mix with people that you know, we know what's going to happen if one of us gets sick and all that kind of stuff. Once we get the fundamentals in place and we got all this time on our hands, I think it's really good to find what your epic meaning and purpose is in life and then throw yourself into educating yourself around that area. Whilst at the same time, also finding something that you find is fun or you're interested in or you don't even know, but you're going to experiment uh, right now that can really provide value in your life. You know, if, if you're bored right now, there's definitely a problem there with epic meaning and purpose. There's definitely um, a block there in your creative thinking. So, you know, have a, have a little think out of the box. And this is what one of the great things about Strive is you can go to Strive platform, you can go to the community there and you can be bored and you can post that you're bored and then you'll get another 30 people telling you, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Right. So I really think right now at a period of time where loneliness is going to be a massive, massive issue. And, you know, let's remember you could be lonely surrounded by people. 
you know, for, you know, <laughs> the old romantic notion of relationships being this kind of beautiful, wonderful thing are being smashed apart right now in homes all over the world, right? Most of us are realizing that none of us are really present in our relationships, that we're all addicted to our work or our smartphone or our video games or whatever. And we're not, we have been taking our partners and our children and our parents for granted. And it's now that we're stuck together that we're realizing that, you know, we're realizing that. So we, we can be very lonely within a relationship and there can be lots of challenges, you know, arguments, uh, learning how to navigate conflict, that kind of stuff. But there's so much we can learn in order for us to get better. And I think Strive is a good place for that. So, you know, there isn't going to be another 1,000 day sober experience until July. We've just started the April one on Sunday. So good luck to everybody uh, in, in that. I, I hope you uh, really enjoy it. So we're not going to do another one until July. But hey, you know, the Strive doors are going to be open 24-7. So if you want to join Strive, then head to the website, join the email list, and uh, we'll tell you how to join Strive. It's £40 a month. It's not a cost. It's an investment. Think about how much money you're spending on alcohol. £40 a month is nothing, all right? Uh, if you want to get immediately on the Strive, then just email me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com, and I'll send you a direct link, and you can get on board. If financial constraints are an issue for you, and I know they are for some people in this time, uh, then email me at that email address, thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com, and we'll have a conversation and a chat about how we can develop a win-win situation and get you the support you need. You should not be doing... It always, it always blows my mind when I hear about people trying to stop drinking alone. There's absolutely no need for that these days. There's so many different resources out there. So please reach out to us and join Stripe, okay? And to give you an example of the value that you can get when you do come to Strive, I will introduce today's guest. So uh, she's been on before. Her name is Lisa Dinhofer. She is the crisis tamer, okay? She works with subject matter and circumstances most people turn away from. Uh, Lisa mentors companies past traumatic events, workplace abuse, and disastrous communications to regain stability, build resilience, and establish a new normal. Lisa was an employee at the World Trade Center during the 1993 bombing and was still working in New York City during 9-11. She draws from those first-hand experiences of trauma in the workplace and lessons learned from other workplace tragedies. Uh, Lisa is a certified thanatologist, trained counselor and communication expert with over 18 years of professional experience training, consulting, coaching and speaking on effective messaging and situational management for traumatic or an unexpected loss. Workplace bullying, sexual harassment, difficult conversations and unintended outcomes, chronic conflict and performance development within high intensity frontline occupations and business environments. She's also a Strive coach. So after you've listened to this and you want to work with Lisa, you've got two ways of doing that. You can check out her bio, which will be in our show notes, either on SoundCloud or on whatever podcast you're listening to or YouTube. Or you can reach out to me at thetruthaboutalcohol.gmail.com and I'll put you in touch with her. Or you can just join Strive because for your £40 a month subscription, you get access to all of our Strive coaches, of which Lisa is one. And you can work with her on a one-to-one -one basis and you can listen to what she has to say when she runs our group online workshops, which will be free of charge for Strive members, right? And Lisa is a beauty. She's a gem. She is really top-notch, full of experience, 
And she's always pulling me up and uh, in a very gentle and uh, a beautiful way. And uh, so I'm always learning when I'm in a conversation with Lisa, as I did today. I got her on because there's a lot of people out there at the moment worrying about a lot of things due to COVID-19. Uh, originally, I got her on because I wanted to talk about people losing their job and worrying about financial insecurity. The conversation become a lot more than that. We do touch upon that, but we talk about um, how this is impacting different generations. Uh, we talk about our collective finite loss that we're experiencing and a whole lot more. I hope you really do enjoy it. Like I said, if you want to work with Lisa, uh, there are various different ways you can do that. The one I really encourage you to do is by joining Strive. Okay. Um, uh, other than that, I will just shut the hell up and I will leave you in the capable hands of our amazing Strive coach, Lisa Dinhofer. Thanks for listening. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Lee. We were just complimenting each other on how we look. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you can't see how we look. But me and Lisa are looking quite spiffing today. And we were talking about the importance of actually slapping on a bit of hair gel and a bit of blush now we're on lockdown. Uh, Why is that, Lisa? Why is that important? Uh, Well, actually, it has to do with uh, maintaining your mental well-being. When when you get out of sweatpants or pajamas, or as a good friend of mine uh, from another country used to call it his sleeping suit, you know, and we put on clothes that make us presentable to go outside and we do our hair and we, if you're so inclined to put on makeup, it just helps feel, it helps us feel um, less under the constraints that we're in today and that we're still normal people, regular people. It helps us feel presentable to the world, but also presentable to ourselves. When we look in the mirror and we see someone that doesn't give us a fright mm. and because of what we look like, um, it really does do positive things for our, our, our mental well-being. It's interesting. I'm, I'm going to use my father in law as our poster child for our discussion, at least starting off anyway. And uh, he, he's, uh, I think he's 78 now. So, and uh, he... For, his, for all his life, he's been a worker, right? He, he's a workaholic. Um, and he's a tailor in LA. And he will literally go to work seven days a week, working 12 to 14 hours a day, okay? So I was really interested to see how this would affect him. I was really worried. I thought that we would get into a lot of fights about trying to stop him from leaving the house. And we have had a few. But it's been really interesting watching him you know, and how he behaves. And I want to just share with you some of those things and let's talk about what's going on for him because people will relate. One of the things, he always, he always, he always dresses up in his his shirt and trousers and um, he always does his hair. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's not letting one single gray come. We had to stop him from going to get his hair cut the other day. Mm -hmm. My, My wife had to cut his hair in the back garden. So, so for him being, you know, looking good is nothing's changing. He's not kind of slouching. And he's, I just watch him pottering around in, first of all, in, in the garage, cleaning everything up. Mm-hmm. And now he's in the garden because the weather's good. And he's like turned into this landscape garden. But, but as I'm watching him, he, he has to keep busy. So like he mm-hmm. keeps preening the same hedge to, to the degree that I'm looking at him thinking, is this pointless? Like, you know, there's a, I'm, I'm trying to get in my head like this, the, the need to be effective plus the need to just be busy. 
And I'm worried that at some point, if this keeps going on and he runs out of things to do in a garage in a garden, that his mental health will be affected quite considerably. Uh, what do you think is going on in his head with your well, experience? You know, he's from another generation that went through World War II and may have heard stories about World War One from his grandparents. And I think that generation has a lot to teach us about getting through our current times. What people did um, in Europe and in the United States during those times really shows us what tenacity and perseverance is, is all about. And one of my favorite documentaries to watch is by Ken Burns called um, The Worst Hardest Time. Hmm. And it's uh, by a book, uh, Timothy Egan, and it's about the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl in the United States started in the Midwest, in the agrarian part of the state. And because of the very poor practices at that time of overworking the land, it removed all the topsoil. And when the wind came in, it began blowing the dirt. And it got so bad that you couldn't see in your face. It entered your home no matter how much you boarded up the windows and the doors and people began eating it and ingesting it and dying from what they called dirt pneumonia. And initially, the country thought, well, this is a Midwestern problem, but actually it it traveled all the way east. And at that point, uh, President Roosevelt actually had to wipe the dirt off of his desk because it was coming through the cracks and crevices of the White House. Now, simultaneous to that, we were also in the middle of a depression and a second world war. So think about the constellation of those stressors. And the biggest takeaway for me is that the Dust Bowl lasted for 10 years, as did the war and and the depression. Mm. And we've only been into this here in the United States for what, five weeks? And we're starting to see people act out and become very rebellious. I think people in that generation understood that being productive is important to one's self-esteem, to one's level of confidence. Getting dressed every day to look look presentable is part of one's integrity and one's uh, self-esteem. I think they really have coping cha- coping skills that unfortunately in today's world, we, we don't see much of and we could probably learn a lot. And I would bet that for him, redoing the same things in the garage is not going to be seen as useless. It's something else he can do. And whatever it is he does, he will take pride in doing the best that he can, even if it means rearranging the garage five different mm-hmm. times. Do you know what I, I caught him doing the other day? And it was quite sweet. He'd got this big bucket of rusty old nails and he was taking the rust off them one by one. But as I was watching him do it, it was a part of my modern Lee David thing. What a waste of time. I'll give him something to do. But then I looked and he was really quite meditative. He was, yes. he was in the zone. Yes, he's in the zone, and that creates the same kind of um, outcomes in our brain as meditation. Anything that's rhythmic, cleaning the rust off a bucket of nails, knitting, crocheting, cooking, doing something that has repetitive motion creates the same 
um, circumstances in our brain as actual meditation. So he was probably very much on the right side of his brain, which is a very creative side, the emotional side. And also in his mind, removing the rust from the nails is now making those nails useful once again. Mm -hmm. And that generation was very much about you don't waste anything. You repurpose everything as much as possible. You, it's beyond the school of make do. Um, there's actual pride in repurposing things and reusing things and being creative on how we reuse things and not being wasteful. Mm. I grew up in that in my home, listening to my, my grandmama talk about um, making a meal out of nothing you know, using every scrap of cloth to make aprons and curtains. And there was a real pride in not being wasteful. And so I'm willing to bet that that was part of his mindset in taking the rust off the nails. And then comparing him to my dad in the UK, and obviously I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not living with my dad, but from just what I can pick up when I talk to them on FaceTime and talking to my mom and, and talking to my dad, um, he, he's, uh, my dad is 68. He's retired, and um, and every time. So so when I talk to my Korean father, and I'm around him, he never complains about anything, like nothing. He's not. He's lost his livelihood, like he because he's obviously had to shut his tailor shop up. He's not complained about anything. And then when I ring my dad up in the UK and I ask him what's going on, he's he's moaning and groaning. His uh, his only concern seems to be that the pubs aren't open, like. You know, he said to me the other day, I can't believe the pubs won't be open until December. He's drinking at home. He's never drunk at home in his life. Every time I see him, he's shoving a bottle of beer in, in, in my face. And he just thinks life is boring. And, he, and let, you know, he's, he's really very quick to run out of things to do. Uh-huh. And, and that's a real difference in not only perspective, but um, coping mechanisms that can meet the current challenge. A lot of people now are experiencing something that I call an external stressor overcoming internal resources. And it sounds like your dad is in that spot. And also, if your dad has a drinking problem, then we know that people with addiction chase feelings. They avoid feelings and chase other feelings. So using alcohol or whatever someone is addicted to is a way of trying to mitigate the feelings of discomfort that people with addiction problems don't have good coping skills for. They can't sit through discomfort, right? They have to run away from it and get to another feeling that whether it's a high or it just numbs them out is their way of coping, mm. right? So it's looking for an external way to cope rather than an internal way of coping. You know, the first gentleman you talked about today, your, your father-in-law, he's looking for things, to, he, he's actively seeking ways of coping from his mind. He's being creative and creativity is an actual form of coping and problem solving. Your dad in the UK actually is looking for things outside of himself to feel better. And what I've been telling a lot of people through this is that this situation is what I call an inside game. This is all about where we park our mind. And we're going to get tired. And th this is, we are in global collective trauma and grief. We are collectively grieving 
the way life used to be. And it's a particular type of loss called a non-finite loss. Some people are also grieving the physical loss of their family and friends, which makes it even harder. But collectively around the world, regardless of what country you're in, we are experiencing a non-finite loss. And the characteristics of a non-finite loss is that it's from external sources that we cannot resolve and that it is a continual loss. So we are constantly having to adapt to the changes. And this absolutely is an adaptive challenge. It creates an ongoing sense of helplessness, constant uncertainty about what will happen, will this end. It creates, in spite of all of our technology, it creates a disconnection from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Human beings are, are, are built to be in physical contact with each other, to feel that exchange of energy. It also, um, one of the biggest challenges of a non-finite loss is the eventual coping fatigue and support fatigue. A person going through a non-finite loss, after a while, gets exhausted from constantly coping with a high-level stressor that doesn't seem to ever be ending. And the people around them become exhausted from supporting them in something that doesn't ever seem to be ending. Hmm. We are all in this non-finite loss right now. And we're both coping and helping to support. So we're really being exhausted in the fact that this is not a discrete crisis. You know, like Mm. September 11th was a discrete crisis. It happened in one day and then we were right into the recovery. This crisis is still unfolding and we're still in the crisis mode. We're not yet on the other side of this in the recovery mode. And there's question about when that will happen because of the real uh, potential for resurgence. So this is an extremely diff- difficult mental health and physical health challenge we're dealing with. And grief, we are grieving um, what we're what we've lost and the restrictions that we're under, and what what it means, what we're telling ourselves about what that means. It's really interesting that all, all, although we are all suffering from this collective finite loss. Of course, everybody's dealing with it differently. They? Right. So if you go back, and that that could be seen as a that that's light like at the end of the tunnel for me. You know, it's like when I look at my two parents, for example, my Korean father. He's he's a tailor, right? He's creative, so he's been creative all his life. So I, I can see, and I, I, he sits down in front of the telly, Lisa, and he he he, he, he consumes all this coronavirus crap. But he also likes music and he likes listening to music and he, he likes that kind of stuff. Whereas my other, my father, my my proper father, um, he's not creative. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't watch TV. He doesn't listen to the radio. He doesn't go onto the internet. He's a guy who flies to Hong Kong to work for 15 hours and stands up all the way and refuses to watch a show. Like he sleeps most of his time. And and I, I look at it and I think, wow, that that creativity, you know, must really help people right now. Yeah, it does. It gets you on the right side of your brain. You know, your frontal cortex is all about taking in information and synthesizing that data and making decisions. And it's all the rational part, uh, rational thinking. But creativity is on the right side of the brain. And it's also what allows us to reach uh, periods of transcendence 
Uh, when we listen to music, we can be really moved by that. When we look at artwork, we can be moved by that. When we when we play the piano or we engage in gardening, you know, clipping bonsai trees, whatever it is, creativity is a wonderful respite for our brain. Mm-hmm. That our our brains are being overwhelmed right now, overloaded with information. It, it's called infobesity. It's too much information. Uh, coming in and digital overload. There are real symptoms around digital overload being on the computer like this, being on our smartphones. So when we're being creative, using things that awaken our five senses, color, smell, taste, touch, it it's not that we're not living in the real world. It's just that we're leaving it aside for a while to give our brains a rest And to go into the part of our brain that we're hardwired to help us cope. Mm. Creativity helps us cope. And it's also what's behind problem solving. And many times people, uh, you hear engineers talk about this. They have a really difficult engineering issue that they can't quite figure out. And when they engage in right brain activities, all of a sudden they see it. It comes to them, right? Mm. I mean, you said earlier on something super important for this podcast that we need to talk about, actually. You said, um, when I was talking about my dad in the UK and about him drinking at home, you said something along the lines of, you know, people who have a drinking problem, right? So I just want to focus on that a second, because I think what has happened here is incredible. And I think it will, it's a real lesson to be learned here. So let's look at my dad. He's 68. Um, sorry, Dad, we're going to talk about you, mate. Uh, he's 68. He's been drinking alcohol probably since he's about 14, I would say, you know, 14, 15. But let's say he's been drinking consistently from 18 because mm-hmm. 18 is a legal age that you can drink alcohol. So I would imagine my own man drinking 18 probably, uh, had a, you know, he had a drinking, there was drinking in the week, in the midweek, but the weekend was the time. So... Later on, so he's probably been drinking for like four to five decades. Right. And and in my recollection of my dad drinking in, in his later years, he would go to the pub at least two, three times a week in midweek in the afternoon. He would occasionally go out with my mom on a Saturday night or on Saturday afternoon and just stay throughout if there was sport on. And he would religiously, it doesn't matter what was going on in the world, he would be queuing up outside that pub door at 12 o'clock to drink all the way through to the afternoon and come home, have his dinner and go to sleep. That's religiously week in, week out. But never, ever, ever, ever did I ever see my old man drink at home, ever, right? That's an important point to remember it. When I ask my dad, has he got a problem with alcohol? He, sa- he will say no. He will categorically defend and deny and justify why he doesn't have a drinking problem, right? Yet when the pub closes and he cannot go to the pub, and if you saw my old man in a pub, and I, when I turned 18, I would go to, my dad wanted me to go to the pub with him. It's how we connected, Lisa. Right, right. This is, this is me and my, this is my, my old man in the pub. We would sit down next to each other and he wouldn't say a word. He would sit and smoke, and I would be there by his side and occasionally would say the odd thing or two. He would get up and do the raffle, and then he'd sit back down again. That was his life, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, he, he cannot stop talking about the pub. He never talked to anybody. He never 
<laughs> mixed with anyone. He never played pool or dominoes or snooze. He just drank alcohol. And, and now he's drinking at home. That, to me, is someone who's got a real problem, that they, it, can't, they can't leave it alone. It's also somebody who is incredibly lonely. For him going to the pub, even if he didn't interact with anyone else, he was out with his tribe. He knew those people who were there. He knew when they would come in. They knew when he would come in. And that was a part of his life that was very dependable. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to talk to anybody. Just being there and being able to drink and what the alcohol did for him in his brain and how he felt was enough. Now that that is not available to him, he is drinking at home to try to recreate that feeling of safety and community and what he got there. And drinking alcohol is the only way he's going to be able to recreate that at home. And how he perceives a drinking problem, he clearly does not see himself as having a drinking problem because of the way he defines it. And he is desperately trying to cope with using the tools he's always coped with life. You know, you say he, he would go to the pub after work. Well, I'm sure that every day that he went to work, it was not a stellar day. There would be times that it was a bad day or a very stressful day or things were stressful at home or, you know, the, the challenges that life brings us. But he could always depend on going to the pub and leaving those problems behind for a while by altering his consciousness through alcohol and just being around in community with other people. Yeah. And now he doesn't have that. You've never, you've ne he is a very, very lonely person. I've never, ever, even... I'll go to Starbucks to work as opposed to being in the house to work pre-lockdown. And, and I, I talk to a few regulars there now and the staff and they all know my name. But, but for a long, long time, I was just there. And it was just being around the energy That's of right. people. So I, I, I get that with my own man. I've never thought of that, that before. What I want to accentuate here with my own man, though, because I think it's really important, is my own man's you know, habit here around alcohol is no different to, I would say, 75, 80% of blokes that I knew where I grew up and their sons turn out exactly the same. Yeah. And I know that my dad did the same as his dad. So this is generations of people right. following each other like right. lambs to the slaughter. Not and, and what I want people to do is I want people to who are, who are drinking right now at home that never used to drink at home, I want you to really try to start thinking, why am I doing this? In my dad's case, Lisa comes a across a, a good one he's very lonely he just joined facebook for god's sake and started yeah. posting on facebook about him drinking you know? right so start asking yourself the question why why am i drinking at home right now? well i saw a study the other day that um it was about fear and significant numbers of people are registering fear about losing a loved one to this illness becoming sick themselves or becoming seriously ill with, with long-term uh, effects of this. And I saw, I think, within that same study, that there's an 8% increase in people abusing alcohol and drugs so far with this. And this is just one study. And I think that people with addiction problems, regardless of what their drug of choice is, being alcohol, drugs, shopping, sex, food, whatever, this is a huge challenge. This is an adaptive challenge. And when you're used to using something that numbs your senses to cope, you're going to reach for that 
even more than you normally do because this is an outsized stressor for all of us. Our regular coping mechanisms are no match for this. So we're all having to really adapt and continue to adapt as this unfolds. Mm. Some of us are doing that better than others. But people who are accustomed to rather than actually coping and adapting, they're reaching for something that numbs their senses to make it tolerable, right? And because this is an outsized stressor, more than just what life serves up on a regular basis, we're seeing people really look to things outside of themselves to either distract them more or numb them more or try to fill a hole I can tell you that there will be people that come out of this not being able to fit into whatever is in their closet because they are just consuming Mm. huge amounts of what we know as comfort food, very carb-heavy foods that create that dopamine rush. Um, People who are nonstop on the phone, on the computer, whatever, to distract them because we are being forced to slow down and take a time out. And so many people are petrified of being alone with themselves. Mm. They, they are being forced to be alone with themselves, even if they're living with other people in the house. Yeah, I was going to say that, 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 is gonna, that is a really important point, that. Right? To be alone with yourself, to listen to yourself think, and to be able to sit with all the uncomfortable feelings that we're having. Uncertainty, we're not hardwired in Western countries to sit well with uncertainty. We learn from an early age that we're supposed to be striving for certainty. That's how we maintain safety. That's how we become successful. That's not happening here. We are um, having difficulty living with the chronic anxiety and fear of, of what this is creating. The sheer upheaval of life as we know it and being allowed to do what before was so simple and we didn't even take into consideration. What the perception of what all that means, right? The big safety issue. And then on top of that, people who are grieving the physical death of a loved one are being walloped because they're not allowed at the bedside to say goodbye to a, a loved one as they're actively dying. And that violates the social contract that we have with our loved ones. You don't abandon people at the time of death. Mm. So they can't be at, at the bedside. They're depending on nurses and physicians who are just so burned out to be surrogate family members, to hold up the phone, to do a FaceTime or pictures or whatever. Then when it comes to the funeral, we don't have those rituals to, to depend on any longer because we can't gather. So we're having to do these drive up and watch from the car funerals or live streaming funerals. Again, it creates that disconnection from our tribe in the mainstream. Even if I can see you right now, I can't really get the same energy input from you than if I was in the same room with you. And there Mm -hmm. are times in our life in extreme crisis like death where we need that comforting. We need to feel another human being hug us and just be with us. And we can't even have that at a death. So this is creating huge bereavement challenges for people that's going to haunt them. Mm -hmm. And what I've been saying to business leaders is that you really need to review your bereavement policies at work 
and you need to cut people a real break because they're not going to bounce back from this as fast as you'd like um, because there's this feeling of irrational culpability, shame, guilt. I wasn't there. They died alone. Oh, my God. I, I didn't have a chance to really say goodbye. This stuff is going to haunt people. And it's going to interfere with their performance and how they show up at work, how they show up at home. We, we've got some real emotional, mental health, and social challenges uh, ahead of us. Yeah, I, I was saying to Liza the other day, because I don't, I don't consume a lot of this content that's on the TV. I stay, stay away from it. You know, I, I, I know I try to make it simple. Just I don't leave the house. If I go grocery, I got a particular grocery shop, and I got a particular thing that I follow. I'm just really careful. I don't need to know much else, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't get involved in it because I don't want to be going down that road. Um, so, but I did the other day. I was like, I then there talking to a dad. He's got a telly on, and and then I see all these makeshift morgues and stuff, and uh, and uh, hospitals and churches, and I and I realized for the first time, oh wow, if one of us catches it, we will leave. And that could be the last time we see each other. Right. We won't know what's going on until we come home or the doctor rings us to say we're okay or we're dead. Um, and I yeah. just said to Liza, you know, we just need to get get okay with that in our head that when we go, we're going to go. And we're just going to have to hope that we're strong enough and lucky enough to get through it, you know. Um, so that that gives me a little bit of mental preparation. Right. It's a reckoning, actually, that... You know, this is a shattering of our assumptive world, how we think the world is going to work and and this false notion of safety and control that we walk around with. When your assumptive world is shattered, you realize you don't have the level of control that you thought you did. You never did. And that something like this could happen again. Mm. And so it reminds us to be very present when we're engaging with someone else, whether it's in the room or like this because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you and I, this could be our last conversation. Yeah. And, and how do you want to show up for those conversations? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want the last words to be said? So we have to be careful. We have to be present. We have to be careful, be mindful, and be kind. And really ask ourselves, the things that we get worked up with, with our loved ones, is it really that important? Would you want those to be your last words? Because for a lot of people dealing with the death of a loved one, that's what they're living with. And I can tell you as a thanatologist that if you've had a row with somebody or you've had an estrangement with them and then there is a sudden death, you have far harder coping challenges in that bereavement than people who did not have that unfinished business, unsaid words unkind words, not rectified. Um, it, it can really create problems. And we're in a time of uncertainty where being young and healthy is no longer the um, guarantee that you're going to come out of this. And by the way, that's exactly the way it was in the 1918 pandemic. It was particularly cruel in that it targeted um, young adults and they seemingly started to get better. They would sit up, their color would look better, the fever would go away, they'd maybe start asking for food and within a few hours they were dead. It came back within a few hours and took them right out. And that happened 
so often with that population in the prime of their life that you assume has the greatest chance of survival. And we're seeing this illness express itself in so many variations, in so many different age ranges. It's really tough for medical professionals to say, well, if you're in this range, you're relatively safe. We're now seeing that young people who don't have pre-existing uh, health conditions and who have a mild form of this are dying from sudden strokes because of the way it's affecting the body. There's yeah. so much we don't know about this. So we need to respect it, take it seriously, and you know, dig in our heels to persevere and do what we can to mitigate its spread. Because at this point, that's all that we're left to do. If we don't have the testing to identify who is ill, just going by symptoms is not enough because we know that a large portion of infected people are asymptomatic. So we have to do what we can. And again, it goes back to, you know, your father's generation. They all did what they could. They did what they could for themselves, but they also did what they could for their community. I think there was a, a much stronger collective sense. And I listened to the Queen's speech recently that, um, you know, at, at her advanced age, she still has such profound impact on people. She is seen as someone who is still powerful and yet very reassuring. And when she was talking about how this reminded her of what she went through in World War II, she described the British people as having a quiet, good-natured resolve to carry on. And that's what she was encouraging people today. And I think, you know, after listening to, you know, my dad's family, that's exactly what was going on there. This good-natured resolve to carry on. And there was an understanding that when we pull our shades down at night to blacken out, well, my neighbors are going to do that too, because it will keep not only them safe, but me safe. And we all do it in a community so that we are all safe. We're all in this together. So we have to do what we can do together to come through this. And I think that's missing here now. And it's a shame because it's, a, it's a, an important form of coping. Yeah, my whenever I talk to my boy, he lives in Ogmore Valley. And, you know, the, the things that they're doing, like my friends, my old friends, you know, they're dressing up into tuxedos and they're running bingo in the street and all that kind of stuff and uh, raising money for the national health. But the one constant with all of these things, like, so they're, they're carrying on and they've got this stiff upper lip and this wonderful community spirit. But my boy said the one constant with everything they do is alcohol. Is everything is hinged around alcohol. And he says, the problem is, Dad, he said, what starts out to be a really positive thing right. quickly fall apart because the inhibitions. Um, next thing you know, at first it starts off, everybody's dancing in their own front garden, right? And then everybody's dancing in the street with six foot distance between them. And then the more they drink, everybody's just dancing in the street, you know? And so it's, it's, um, it's just, a, it's just a shame that like what's happening in the UK now, from what I can gather talking to my family and uh, other people is that there's almost like a bank holiday spirit. That's just slowly starting to erode. 
But uh, in the UK, we have bank holidays. And what we typically typically do on a bank holiday is we get smashed. And, yeah. and that's accentuated if it's hot weather. So there's a real culture of uh, pub gardens and going out yeah. and getting smashed. And right now, this it actually reminds me of when the smoking ban came in. The smoking ban came in in the UK in the summer. And people were like, this ain't that bad. Because they could go outside to the pub and smoke because it was sunny. They didn't half whinge when it when it started to rain. And yeah. real, you know, and, and so now I think everybody in the UK is they're really celebrating. It's like, yeah, let's why well, it's great. I don't have to go to work, I can get smashed. E- even yeah. the people who've lost their job are thinking, Well, I don't have to go to work, let's just get smashed. And now, you know, as I'm talking to my mom and my dad and my boy, they're starting to you know, it's like five weeks. You know, you said like the, the war lasted for 10 years. Like they're five weeks. They're like, oh my God. Like, Well, don't forget also that in the UK, different, I think it's very different here that in the UK, pubs are not just bars. I mean, in the United States, we have bars and people go to bars and they drink. But pub life in the UK is different than what goes on in bars here. Mm. Every community has got its own neighborhood pub. Yeah. And th- that communal collective, this is the pub I belong to. Everyone knows my name. I know their name. We all do the same songs and the raffle and the darts. And it's it's a tribe. It's a form of yeah. collecting. It's where people go to be with each other, to sing songs together, to be, you know, and to socialize. And that social aspect is part of tribal behavior. And I think that's very different in the UK than here, where people go to bars to drink, to pick people up, but it's not a part of their community life. Mm. It's a habit that they do, but I don't think it has the same degree of social connection and importance as pub life in the UK does. No, so you're, you're right. It is very, it is very uh, different, very unique. And it, it's one of the, it's one of the biggest issues, particularly for men when it comes to stopping drinking, it's what stops them coming out. It what's, they're just, they're just so fearful. It's not, even when you, you it, it's such a barrier there. It's like, you know, you point out that, hang on a minute. You, if you go to Starbucks and look around, you see kind of the same thing going on without any alcohol because everyone's just laughing and joking. You see people in the corner crying. You see in-depth conversation. And the same things are kind of, you know, food, people are eating food and drinking coffee as opposed to eating bar food and drinking beer. Um, right. The only thing that's missing is your pub, is your jukebox. No, you got music. So they're very similar. It's just that people can't get out of that. And one of our biggest challenges at 1000 Days Sober is to just help people along as they their life actually transforms and they move away from more toxic environments into new ones. It's unusual for me to see somebody who gets 1000 Days Sober, for example, who's still going to the pub, but they're not drinking and they're not triggered. They, right. just, they end up not going to the pub because their tribe changes and their environment changes. As a but result. then that's a huge loss that they experience. You know, yes. that's a non-death loss because yeah. people, especially if they start drinking early, in formative years, that's how they learn to socialize. Mm-hmm. Alcohol becomes a huge element of how they socialize with um, like gender um, and opposite gender and that socialization with alcohol or anything else in, in there um, becomes part of your admission ticket to be in that particular cohort or that tribe. And the fear of 
Will my friends still accept me? Will my friends want to hang around me because I'm not drinking? Is this going to get weird that I'm not drinking and they are, and they're going to try to get me to drink? Or are they going to not want to be around me? And how much of this social life that I had was really about them liking me and me liking them? Or was it really just about the alcohol? Mm-hmm. And, and it's really not about me. And so you really start to learn who your real friends are and who they're not. And you're going to have to renegotiate those relationships that, okay, we hang out together, we do things together, but we need to find a way to do that without the alcohol. And we need to both be okay with that. And it doesn't mean the other person has to stop drinking. You're not being militant telling them what to do. But there has to be an agreement and a respect and a support for the fact that I'm not drinking anymore. I don't care if you do, but we just can't do it when we're together because that's going to make life really hard for me and it's not in my best interest. So if you love me as a friend, you will support me mm. in what in, in my best interest. And they're not sometimes there are people who cannot make that adjustment. And so we end up having to say goodbye to people that was part of that drinking lifestyle that we had grand times with and we love them to bits, but they don't really want to hang around us if they, you know, if drinking can't be part of it. And that's a loss that comes with sobriety. Yeah. The that that happened with ev- every single, every single one of my friends, all of my family, my wife, everybody. Um, what I did after that, it was, uh, I, I created new friendships. Right. But but uh, not, nobody that I hung around with uh, is still in my life today. Nobody, not single. Person. Right, and that's one of the risks I think that people, you know, negotiate with themselves. Well, if I stop drinking, or if I stop taking drugs, or if I stop, you know, whatever it is, will I no longer have any friends? Mm-hmm. And and what does that mean? What does that say to me? And so then it becomes, well, what's more important to me? Mm-hmm. The reasons why. I want to stop drinking and not having those consequences in my life, or am I willing to accept those consequences so that I can still be a part of that tribe? And when the consequences of remaining in that tribe, which means excessive drinking, when those consequences hit, will the tribe be as nearly as valuable to you then than it is now? And to choose the social aspect of drinking to keep those social relationships rather than the commitment to stop drinking. It's a form of resistance. It's a form of avoidance, but it's also fear. And it means a huge change in your life and the possibility of having to start all over making friends, which is not an easy thing to do in our culture. Not not, not as we get older as well. No, it's not. But that's that's why things like I think that strive is super important. You know, you get you get a lot of people like just now we're just starting a new uh, workshop you know April workshop and uh, I'm trying to g people up to get on strive and some people are saying well no I'm a really private person I don't want to talk to people like that on strive um, but I feel like it's a perfect place to practice communicating to people because you don't see anybody do you know do you know what I mean it's, it's yeah. like you you're you you don't see anyone so you just have to type someone and press send. So now, and then, then eventually you build up to seeing somebody digitally, Mm -hmm. and then you build up to seeing someone physically. I think it's like the perfect kind of like stepping stone. So you know what? Maybe respond to them in that 
okay, so you don't need to show up in writing, but just show up, take it in, be present, um, listen and read. And you may come to a point where you want to start posting, but don't feel as though if you're a real introvert and, and it's not your norm to be posting online, don't use that as a reason not to join the tribe to help make this a successful transition for you. Just show up. It's okay if you just show up because eventually how you feel now will most likely change down the road. So it's baby steps. It's mm-hmm. baby, baby steps. Just show up. Yeah, history history is shut. Some of our ambassadors were reading posts for a year before they eventually jumped in and, and started right. to post. So um, what we do have to do is I have to know who these people are, have a little chat with them online or not, just so I know who they are and why they're here, you know, right. so we don't have any kind of like detrimental lurkers, but def- definitely something for me to learn there. Um, someone I wanted to talk to you uh, about. Um, so I didn't lose. I'm a freelancer, as you know, freelancer, entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it. I don't, I don't have a quote unquote job. It's very difficult to me to explain to people what I do when they ask me that question. Um, So I didn't lose my work. I haven't lost any work. However, I was struck with the fear that I could lose my work. Mm -hmm. And then I started to panic. And what happened was I started to, my workaholic tendencies increased. And I ended up distancing myself from my wife and started to feel very anxious when I was with her and my daughter and my son when I'm digitally with him because he's in the UK. Um, And I've had to have a real about turn and really cut my work, and this is going to sound absurd, really cut my working down to six to seven hours a day and spend more time with my wife and my daughter and my son and accept that I'm a workaholic, right? Mm-hmm. And the key to this is, is realizing that I was worrying about something that hasn't even happened. Right. And not only has it not happened, my track record of being a freelancer, which goes back now uh, nearly 10 years, I've never lost a job and I've never lost a contract. I've given them up because I've got new ones. So history tells me, I'm okay. Nothing's happening now, yet I'm freaking out about it. And it's not until I say to myself, hang on, Lee, you've got, let's freak out about it when it happens. Just look after your family, control your workaholic nature, work really hard, make yourself indispensable as you can. Do things, you know, like that they, that you're, you know, people who are employing you really need right now. Like think about how you can be indispensable but don't take it to the nth degree and don't worry about losing your job. I mean, like a lot of people are going to be in the same boat as I was. Yes. I'm seeing a lot of this, actually, this intensity of workaholic tendencies for people who um, are sole proprietors like myself. I run my own business. You run yours. But also I'm seeing this with people who are, who work for others and I'm seeing managers in companies do that to their people, um, coming out with 
very punitive, harsh types of warnings. We're counting the number of keystrokes you're doing per hour. This isn't a time to goof off. And to me, when I hear that, that is someone in a leadership position who's very frightened. They feel as though they've lost control and uh, they manage through fear and control and they don't manage through relationship with their people. So they're doubling down on this enforcement threat kind of thing because they're afraid they're going to get laid off and they're instilling fear in everyone else that every day everyone is having to essentially audition for their job. So if layoffs do come around, uh, they'll be seen as super valuable and they won't get the ax. That does not usually pan out. And what I'm seeing is a higher degree of burnout with people who work for companies that have a job. For people like you and myself, um, I'm also seeing workaholic tendencies and that we feel as though because of this external threat that we have to be even more productive than we were. And it's a way of trying to run away from the wolf at the door. And actually, it's counterproductive to what this time can and needs to be for us. When this all started to hit, my impulse was to become quiet, was to become very still, to go within, to be patient, and to be strategic. Because when, some, when you're faced with an adaptive challenge that's constantly in flux, pouring yourself to the point of exhaustion into something today that by tomorrow or next week is irrelevant is simply exhausting yourself. Mm. And really now is a time to get quiet and to go within, to get a hold of our mind, going back to an inside job where we park our mind and to resist the impulse that we're going to be able to work our way out of this. We're not. This is not a time for showing how productive we can be and that's what's going to save us. There are other things that we need to do now in order to get through this. And this is about our humanity. Mm. And I think spending more time with your family and when you're with them being really present, it's not just that you're not working. When you are with Liza and, and Zoe to be and your son in the UK to be really present, whatever didn't get done today won't get done. And we may find out that by tomorrow, next week, it doesn't really matter because the the situation outside that is all about what our product productivity is, right? What we put out into the world may not be relevant or even accessible because of what's going on out there. Utilize the time to go within, utilize the time to be with your family, to be really present with them and to be present with yourself. There's only so much work that we can get done in a day and there's really only so much that other people are going to be able to do with what we produce because of the constraints they're under as well. So be productive for the sake of creating something, not to say, look what I did. I'm not being lazy. Here's my best. Be productive to really create something of value to put in the world rather than just saying, look how productive I'm being, and this is for sure going to save me. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it was, I was actually, 
I was I, I was setting my alarm to go off eight times randomly a day just to check in how I was feeling mm-hmm. to relate it to flow states. And, mm-hmm. um, and I realized that it would go off every morning while I was having breakfast with Zia. And I was, as I would write down how, how I was feeling and it was a combination of gratitude for being with her and love. But this, this uh, hum of anxiety kind of like, yeah. I, I, I got it. I, I can't wait for a month to get up. So at half past nine, I've got to go work, right? Yeah. And and then I, I realized because because we're in a house together constantly, a lot of people, I am anyway, or we're getting into conflict situations, like yeah. we're getting on each other's nerves. Yeah. And then and then it came to a head. And then I realized uh, through reading Ernie Larson's work, actually, Everyone laughs at me when I tell them I'm, I'm just identified as an workaholic. They look at me, they, they just go, yeah, of course you are. But I just, it weren't until I read the description that I thought, oh, wow. And this is what I read that made me go, oh, wow, for people listening who think they work a lot but don't identify. I realized that I was using work to run away from my family yep. because my work, as challenging as it is, as it is is nowhere near as challenging as being a dad, being the mm-hmm. dad and the husband that I want to and need to be. I it's find, a distraction. I find that so exhausting to be that, that I just run away. And and I deal with it by saying things like, you have no respect. You don't understand how hard I'm working for this family. If I stop working right now, we're not going to be able to have this lifestyle. We're not going to be able to send us here to school, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm then, then I'm offloading in shame. And I'm, I'm throwing my shame bombs at Liza as right, well. Right. And and, I, and when I read that, I thought, I don't want to be this guy. This is ridiculous. And it was Kim that helped me out, you know, our right company buddy. She's like, yeah. Strive isn't going to fall apart if you're not there tomorrow. That's right. You know, that's right. And work for so many people who are workaholics, work is a distraction from being present in their life. Yeah. From being really fully present in their life. And that's usually about the relationships in their life. And also being present with themselves. So when we keep ourselves ultra busy and ultra distracted, it's a very convenient and socially acceptable way of avoiding what really makes our life, the quality of our life, and that's the relationships in the life. But in the United States, especially, this is a workaholic culture and you are um, praised for being a workaholic and even shamed in some ways if you're, if you're not. And so it's something that other, you know, you look for other people to tell you, look how hard you're working and oh my God, look at what you're producing. But when you're on your deathbed, will you be thinking about the reports that you got out and the business that you made and the contracts that you closed, or are you going to be focused on the people standing around your bed or not standing around your bed. Mm, that, that, All of the things that we tell ourselves are so important right now, they're really not. But we we attach ourselves to those things as being important because it helps us feel important and, and powerful, but in a very false way. It's this it's this pain pleasure thing. So like I and 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 the you know the difference difference between like feeling and rationality for me. So like I've read The Five Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Ware, right? I know what those are. I know none of them are anything to do with work. 
I know most of them are doing like, I wish I played more. I wish I spent more time with my family, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm faced with that. I'm faced with that knowledge and that understanding that, okay, if I just spend more time with my family, statistically, it looks like that is going to be a winner. But I couldn't stop working because I was so terrified about loss right. of jobs. But at the same time, your wife just switches off and she has enough of you and she shuts off. And then at some point in the future, you've lost her. She's dead and you can't get it back. And I'm just hoping right now that I can get that back because, because I've been this way for so long. I'm really confident that I can. We're both really confident we can. But people out there, don't take in our wives and our husbands and our children for granted. Right. Me, for me, it's been as normal as drinking water and eating food. It's just happened. And I find, I think I'm a switched on, introspective, aware kind of guy. And it just happened to me. And what Lisa said uh, earlier on, which was a profound thing for me, you know, we could lose the person we love today right. and never see them again, more than any time in our lifetime. And here we are worrying whether I'm going to get the poker article done today or whether I'm going to get my podcast done with you today because I'm worrying about everyone else except for the people that are closest to me and myself. Right. And you can lose somebody through death because of the virus, but you can also lose somebody from neglect of the relationship. Death of the relationship. And neglect of a relationship happens incrementally over a period of time. So the damage from that builds and builds and builds. And usually by the time it's addressed, there's such a mountain of damage that one or both people don't have the interest anymore to go through that mountain of damage, or it's just too late. It's too little too late. Yeah. So again, this, this what's happening to us here for me, in so many ways, is a wake-up call. And I ask myself every day, what am I supposed to be learning from this? And what do I do with that knowledge? And I even hear, you know, some people call this the reset of 2020. And I think yeah. it, it will be in, in many ways. And so let that be a reset in our own homes, in our own lives, in terms of how we show up in our relationships. And Whenever you're with someone or you're faced with a situation to ask yourself the same basic question, what is this situation or what is this person asking of me right now? And how do I need to show up for them? And that is the perfect ending, Lisa. Thank you very much for your time. I you're hope welcome. everybody out there got a lot from this and uh, see, you, see, you on, see you on the Strive Court. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. These are very strange and very testing times that we're in at the moment. So what is it that 1000 Days Sober can do for you right now? Well, there are a number of things that we could do, okay? First and foremost, keep listening to the Alcon Condition Podcast. We'll be writing new episodes on a weekly basis. But you can also get more information, more knowledge, and more education on alcoholism as an invisible, violent, and dominant belief system over our YouTube account, okay? That's 1000 Days Sober at YouTube. You can also get a lot of content over on our Instagram page, 1000 Days Sober Instagram, okay? 
If you want to join Stripe and you want to take part in the 1000 Days Sober Experience, you want to be somebody who doesn't drink for 1000 days, then email me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com because currently right now, because of these testing times, we're giving you a month free. So you can experience our training programs, you can experience our community, you can experience our vibe, and you can see if it really gels with you, okay? And you won't have to pay a single thing for a whole month. If after that free month, you still wanna work with us and finances is still an issue, which it is for so many people right now uh, due to COVID-19, then you and I will have a conversation and we will find a resolution, a win-win uh, for both of us so we can move forward and really help you to become 1,000 days sober. We will not let money be the barrier to you gaining success. So right now, what you should be doing is emailing me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com or go into the website, www.1000daysober.com, sign up for the email list, and then you'll be able to email me directly or have a conversation with me to get you signed up. Or alternatively, send me a WhatsApp message, plus 44-7795-441-383. That's plus 44-7795-441-383. Send me a message on WhatsApp and we will get you signed up. It is really important now more than ever that you are sober, you're looking after your mind and you're looking after your body. Uh, your family needs you, your friends need you, you need you, okay? So drink alone, but you don't have to stop alone. Come and join 1000 Days Sober today. Thanks for listening.